Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. Welcome again to Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Today's guest founded Sedalian Partners to help leaders and investors improve and grow their businesses in technology, software, business services, cybersecurity, and communications. Previously, he was the CEO of Metalogix, sold to Quest Software, IMN, sold to Reynolds and Reynolds, Envoy Worldwide, sold to Nuance, and James Martin and Company, sold to Genpack. I'm starting to think if this gentleman works for you, you're going to get sold, so pay attention. He was a partner at InQtel, the strategic investment arm of the CIA and U.S. intelligence. He's a co-founder of Delta Payment Solutions, an innovator in the payments industry, and he is a sought-after uh, executive coach to CEOs who are experiencing rapid growth and change. Serves on multiple boards, including Spalding Rehabilitation, the Physical Medicine Teaching Hospital of the Harvard Medical School, a passion of his that arose from a serious bike accident. I think we'll get into that a little bit today and understand a little bit about resilience he lives in Boston with his wife and his three dogs, a man close to my heart with my dog. So please welcome Ben Levitan. Hi, Ben. Hey, Dr. Gary. How are you? I'm terrific, man. I, I look forward to hearing about your dogs, of course. We've got to hear about them and uh, your, your, your bicycling. But it sounds like you started off in a lot of different areas. And I don't think that uh, people miss the fact that one of the companies you worked with was a strategic investment arm of the CIA. I've heard of them. Indeed. That was uh, just a real privilege. IQT.org, for those of you in front of a browser or want to do more research, is a, a gem of the U.S. government and technology industry working together to bring innovation that might take years and years to reach the front door of our folks, they bridge the gap. And I had the good fortune to work alongside Chris Darby and Steve Bauscher, the leaders of that business. Chris had been a professional colleague of mine, and he asked me to join him and the team. And I spent four years really enjoying that work and learning an awful lot about the complexities and the challenges of doing our work around the world in intelligence. So yeah, that was definitely a highlight of my professional experience. How do you, you know, when you look at organizations like that and the, the type of people, you're talking about world-class people here, world-class organizations, how did that form your leadership capabilities and, and some of the other things that you did in the past and in the future? And what did you take away from that? So I had been a CEO a few times when I joined the organization. And as you noted, noted it is a non-for-profit, so it's entirely mission-driven. Hmm. So one of the things I, I did was kind of reset what the goal was. Hmm. 
mm-hmm. as opposed to a profit driven motive. It's a mission driven motive. And as well, it's, it's, it's also an organization which is trying to bridge a gap between entrepreneurs who are looking for revenue and sales and growth to, as you point out, some world-class scientists and operators who have a point of view and some expertise to share with those entrepreneurs. So it was uh, quite humbling to learn about the mission and the complexities of it. And it was fascinating to learn about the technology. I think if I were to encapsulate some of the big learnings from that experience is that it's all about the people. The, the intelligence services are divided into various kinds of intelligence gathering. Signals intelligence is technology and communications that you know from the NSA. National Geospatial is an agency folks don't know much about, but is the, focused on geointelligence. And the CIA is focused on human intelligence. And so I really got a, an education and uh, shared my perspective as a, a business person from outside the community about people and about learning about how they look at people as being central to their mission. So it was absolutely fascinating. It was all about people first. You know, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, my perspective and I talk about this in the military all the time. People's perspective on the army is they only see wars and boot camp. So they don't really see the day to day stuff and the, the people interaction and the trust and the camaraderie and the collaboration and the work together that you find in the military that is missed to the public and why people in the military have a, that camaraderie and understanding. When you think about the intelligence community, when I think about it, and all I see in my experience of things on television and other things is I think a lot about the technology of it. It's, it's all about these, you know, big screens and these big computers and, the, you know, super this and that. And yet what you just said is it's all about the people. That's, that just fascinates me. So when you, when you think about this, it doesn't, it almost always come down to the people no matter what. I mean, that's what my whole life is on leadership and it's about the people. Yeah, it, it really does. Certainly, there's some incredible technology that's been invented by the U.S. government, some incredible feats which go unnoticed to accomplish some outrageously difficult missions. But ultimately, it's about the operators. It's about the case officers. It's about the analysts. It's about the people who have dedicated their life to a very difficult, sometimes impossible mission to provide intelligence to decision makers and policy makers before they have no choice. Mm -hmm. So when you think about the work that they do and that we do as people, as professionals, sometimes we over index to the, to the technology, which is, you know, fantastic and, and really magical uh, in some regards, but ultimately, you need a well-trained, dedicated uh, individual to exploit that technology for the purpose of the mission. So, what you know, when I had the had the opportunity to work there, for example, I spent much of my early time not looking for investments that could help the mission, but first getting to know the people that I had the opportunity to interact with, so that they could become familiar with me, 
with my biases, my strengths, my weaknesses. So as I presented an investment idea or as I worked with my colleagues at InQtel to develop an idea, that they would have some context and uh, perhaps eventually trust that, you know, we had good judgment. Now, to be clear, I was part of a team and I referred to it as a three-legged stool. There was the suit, the scientist, and the spy. The most important was the customer. And not all of them are spies in the conventional sense, but they're all supporting the mission. The scientists I worked beyond, uh, beside were remarkable, often at the top of their field. And then I was, as the suit, the least important because I was looking at the business opportunity, the viability of that business model, in some ways, evaluating the quality of the team that would pursue it, and often and consistently working alongside professional institutional investors who would take the lead. InQtel had a, has a supporting role and contributes to a broader community, but ultimately, even when I talk about the people, I'm just one. I was just one part of a broader team effort. So. When you compare that experience to the previous experiences as CEO of these multiple companies, can can you compare some of them, whether it's direct comparison or in your path of learning leadership, you know, go to the first CEO position and the second and the third. And how did you develop and what changed from one to the next to the next? Because one of the things that strikes me, as you said, the first thing is that I need to get to know them. I go into Incutel and I need to get to know them. What does that look like? I mean, do you sit around a table, have a cup of coffee, uh, sitting in, how did you get to know them? Describe that. And as, as a four-time CEO with these other things, you've got a lot of relationship building experience going into this job. How did you leverage that? Talk a little bit about that. What did it look like? That's a, that's a terrific question. So in that experience, the first thing I did was look for their guidance. I wasn't the first person who showed up and said, I have a background as an accomplished professional and I'd like to help the mission by finding new, innovative, unproven at some level, right? Because they're still you know, making losses and trying to figure out their products. Although we only worked with folks who had products at work, let's be clear. But my point uh-huh. is, I'd ask for their guidance on the pattern. You've seen people who might probably are better looking and <laughs> than me and done this before. What did you like about the way they worked with you? How did they succeed in this role? What errors or breakdowns did you experience that you think with some forewarning and some training, I might avoid in service of our collective goal. So I think the expression is the beginner's mind. Uh, I certainly came in with a point of view. I had certain ideas that I thought could help the mission, but the fact was, is that was irrelevant until I had a much deeper understanding about what the pattern of success had been. Incutel had been around for several years, quite successful. Thank you very much. I'm joining a circle. I'm joining a group of people who are working today successfully. How do I adapt my approach to the way they like to work mm. and the, the kind of interest that they have? 
Did you feel that the the positions you had as CEO previously helped feed into that where you don't come in with any level of, like you said, the, the beginner's mind? You don't come in with a level of arrogance or ego. You've already been established. You've already proven yourself. You don't have anything to prove. Now, you want to build relationships and add value. The proof was more to yourself and adding value. But do you think that that path helped you to be prepared for that position to walk in with a level of, of humility that added a lot to your ability to succeed over the long run? Yeah, that's a, a very interesting point. I think one of the things I learned early on in my CEO tenure was that real things happen outside of HQ. They don't happen in what I sometimes lovingly refer to as Comedy Central. They happen in the field. They happen at the rock face. And my experience as a CEO, when and I'm a, I've been a hired gun. I, uh, as you mentioned in the out at the outset, you know I've co-founded a few things, but by and large, I'm a hired gun. And the first sixty days, the first ninety days. By the way, I think that's a a book. The first ninety days that I first ninety days is a book. Love that book. Can't yep. recall the author's name, but he deserves a lot of credit for laying out a very nice framework. And you need to sit down and ask a bunch of questions. I always start from the outside in. I start with the sales or service person that's furthest away from headquarters and work my way in. And that's very similar to what I did at InQtel and, and, and typically do. Rather than starting with, hey, here's my idea. What do you think? It's like, well, what are your ideas? Let me sit and listen. I think, frankly, Dr. Gary, people who know me would say that you know, I'm a high-tempo, uh, strong-minded fellow. And so they probably noticed that even while I was listening, I was still forming an opinion and kind of shaping things. But that lesson where I tr- learned about the parameters, the, the framework that folks wanted me to operate in and what were the non-obvious issues uh, was very important. And in fact, Looking back at my time at InQtel, I spent several months, I think if I recall, three months traveling to headquarters to talk to customers, to learn from my colleagues, rather than kind of sit in my office in Boston and make phone calls and video what you know, video conferences, now we all call it Zoom. That made a big difference. You mean you actually met people face to face? What's to, that? The ex- that, to the extent I, that I could, I tried very hard to do that. And so I was a regular on that early morning flight to D.C. from Boston, and I got a lot out of it. I got you know a, a perspective that I could not get from driving my desk. And I think that's probably the first most important thing I learned as a CEO is that the world looks very different. People treat you very differently. They bring you things that you didn't previously see when you were an uh, an operator or even a business unit manager. And so it's extremely important to go to the source to validate and to do more listening than talking, even though you're paid to make decisions, of course, and and often the decisions that nobody else can make uh, is sort of a, a definition, a classical definition I use for what a CEO does. But in the context of my role in joining an organization, which, thank you very much, you know, I'm one contributor into, 
it was very important for me to park my ego and my drive to a certain extent at the outset and get educated and assimilated into that culture. Well, I like what you just said about being, I'm, I'm one contributor and, and the CEO gets to make decisions that other people not just get to, but as a responsibility to make decisions that other people don't do. In fact, there's a, a Harvard Business Review article that was written a year ago or two years ago where they did research. And the number one reason CEOs got fired was for their inability to make quick enough decisions. Yeah. You know, and there's a direct correlation to that. So, you know, it's interesting listening to your process of going out and meeting people, asking questions, listening, forming ideas, thoughts, opinions, and conclusions eventually as you're going through this process but having enough humility to realize that you're just one contributor and they've got a position, they've got information for you to help you make better decisions. If you know how to ask the questions and listen. So there's a process about that, that I think that a lot of people should understand going into any new situation is to ask questions and engage the people that have been there for a while. <laughs> you know? yeah, and, and like, where, where are we in the life cycle of this organization? Are we growing? Mm. Are we in the process of maybe cutting back? Where are we in our, in the bigger, in the bigger picture? And how can I synchronize my expectations to that? Now you'll know it before you arrive in that job or in that role or in that business unit. But it's very important in my experience to ask a very simple question, which is what are the unseen or hidden opportunities here? that people are not aware of or not talking about because we're all heads down in our work. That was the biggest benefit I got out of that. I get out of that initial, uh, you could call it an audit, you could call it a review. It's getting the benefit of those fresh set of eyes that you have, which you'll quickly lose in in a few short weeks as you get acclimated and enculturated. Yeah. So it sounds to me like you have all this experience as CEO. You had experience as a partner at uh, Incutel, and now you're you founded this uh, Delta Payment Solutions company, and you're doing some executive coaching with CEOs. There's a process that you follow that's very clear to me that you followed going into these organizations. Is that what you do in coaching CEOs today? Is helping them follow this kind of thinking process and an approach? To what you were just saying, what what's their life cycle? Where are they in their strategic planning? You know, uh, do they have people on their staff that actually add value or detract from the team's ability to be able to complete the work? I mean, is that is that kind of what you're doing today? Yes, I, th- I think the, the 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 job, the role, particularly for first time CEOs, as well as for CEOs that have have a new best friend called an investor or a board can really change from underneath them very quickly. They, they may experience significant growth that they were hoping for, but unplanned, and they're faced with all these challenging decisions. They find their, their role changes, their team's role changes, but most importantly, expectations change. And so I spend a lot of time helping CEOs gather the data this isn't all subjective. There's hard data that can help make help us with decisions. People analytics data, cut voice of the customer data that they may say, oh, I already know that. Or I've already decided that 
you know, this fellow on my team, Gary, is a good guy and, and, and he should be great. The role of the coach is to act as a listening post for that CEO, a trusted confidant at some level, and someone who also calls BS when they're kind of uh, listening to their own press. I think the most uh, pivotal aspect of the job, though, first is to find somebody who wants to be coached or determine if they really are keen on that journey because it's a hard journey once you've decided to do it. If, 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 for example, sometimes a board member will call and say, Hey, could you spend some time with this, with this leader? And the leader is, is clearly uncomfortable with, as I like to call it, going deep and going deep isn't for everybody. Um, some folks aren't ready for it. They don't feel vulnerable. They, they, they already feel vulnerable enough. They don't want to feel vulnerable to a new person. So I think part of the initial engagement and part of the initial relationship building is sizing up each other and explaining to them, we've got a few principles that we work along with at Sedalian Partners about how we do coaching. And it includes going deep. And not being afraid of conflict and a whole host of other principles that we work with quite regularly to help guide the the discussion and to help them achieve more than they thought they would. But absolutely, this is a, a, a benefit of the training that I've received, the experiences I've received, and the journey that I'm on to uh, help folks go beyond themselves. Well, I, I have to say that the, you know there's not too many coaches – that can be found out there that have had as many CEO experiences as you've had. And, and that's very, very valuable to look at different cultures, different, different leadership teams. And in those experiences, being able to ask CEO the tough questions for them to think, and like you said, go deep and make some of the tough decisions, you know, being able to ask some very pointed questions about what if you don't do anything with this or that, and that's often a question that they don't like to think about. I need to do this. I need to do that. Well, what if you don't? What's the impact? Yeah. What if you wait? What if you wait? That's right. That's and, right. and, you know, you, you mentioned earlier this issue of a uh, uh, comment about how executives are responsible for making some important and difficult decisions and figuring out what the amount of data is to make that decision, what the timing is to make that decision. And what are the follow-up consequences from that? I think are extremely important to to uh, building a, a confident and effective executive. And uh, let me just add to that: it's uh, the, the research, like from the Gallup group, that talks about uh, and strengths that talks about what followers are looking for: trust, compassion, stability, and hope. And the work that I do with CEOs and executives is like, okay, let's start with trust. If you can't make the tough decision they're going to eventually lose confidence and trust in you because now the problem isn't with this other person that's not performing. It's with the leader not being able to make the decision. The leader becomes the issue. And that's a horrible position to be in if you're the CEO. It is. And I've seen that play out many times where it's genuinely a a tough call. God herself doesn't know the answer. Yeah. And you have to make a call because there are demands on you, whether it has to do with cost cutting 
or an investment to, to meet a product cycle. And those are lonely decisions. And having a, an advisor who has the perspective of having been an operator, having been, I work as an investor as well, and having been on boards, right? You, you get both sides of the table is the way I like to often walk through that kind of discussion. Both sides of the table, meaning, you know, uh, 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 CEO and investor or CEO and board or CEO and subordinate. It wasn't that long ago that I was a subordinate. Uh, uh, and I think to my comment about Incutel, we're all part of a team here. Now, you may be the captain of the team as the CEO, but the fact is, is understanding the other perspective can make you a very effective decision maker. So a lot of times what you're saying is as a coach to a CEO, you take you can take the side with questions and even a position where you sit on the other side of the table and they can practice the debate, the conversation about both sides. So you bring that side having with a lot of experience that it doesn't matter which side of the table it is. And I also think that psychologically and emotionally for a CEO in that what you're saying is the ability to just be able to listen to the person is to be able to re, uh, reinforce and to support the CEO that says what you're about to do is a really hard decision. And as you said, God herself doesn't even know what the right decision is. What's your gut telling you? And let's make sure that we understand you're going to need to take a left or a right, but you have to decide to go left or right. If you keep where you are and don't go left or right, you're hurting everybody. So a coach can go deep and say, you got to make this decision. When's it going to be? And I've, I've done coaching with CEOs and stuff and say, okay, you know what? It's uh, it's one forty-five on a Wednesday afternoon and you need to make this by noon on, on, on Friday. That's it. I'm just telling you right now as your coach, fire me if you want, but you got to make it by noon. Yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. That's okay. You don't know. You've got 48 hours to figure it out. <laughs> and importantly, I'm going to check back in the notion of accountability for a CEO they feel very accountable. I've never met a CEO who sleeps well. By and large, they're always thinking about their business. They're always obsessed with excellence. At least the folks I want to work with are. And the folks, the people who hold them accountable are typically the board or their spouse or their partner. But when it comes to a kind of closer in accountability, it's very hard for a CEO to get that kind of balance. And so in your example, Dr. Gary, you know, the whole idea, you've got 48 hours. And by the way, let, why don't we touch base in 48 hours? That's right. And see where you're at. Call me in the intro. That is a resource that's available to you. Isn't going to make the decision for you, but can help you work it out. And I, I think the other part of it, and I know I, I can just sense that you do this. I will look right in the CEO's eyes. And I'll say, once you make this, this decision, I want you to know something. I'm with you on this. Whatever decision you make, we're in this together and we will figure it out. And if we screw it up, we'll make another decision next week. Okay. But that's okay. And, and we're in it together and having that, that, uh, that, person that becomes, I mean, with a lot of the president's CEOs, I'm, I'm their friend. I talk to them at the holidays. I, you know, send them cards and I'm, you know, I'm part of their life. I know their families and, and, and I love that part of the job. And just to let them know that I'm a lifeline, call me anytime. 
and we will figure this out. So they don't feel like they're all in it to get all by themselves. They, sometimes it's a very lonely job. It really is. Yeah. You know, we've been taking a few minutes here to talk about the harder aspects, but there are some easier aspects of this. Hey, we've got this idea. Things are going well. How do we take advantage of it? How do we skip past the traditional mistakes that are made in a high growth setting so that when the inevitable turn comes, we've set ourselves up for success? So I spend a fair bit of time, even when things are going well and the decisions are between good and better or, you know, versus lousy and good or better and best, however you want to, you want to frame it. How do we? make that decision in alignment with the commitments we've made to the organization, not the budget commitment, but what the brand promise is. What is the meaning of this work? The, 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 the reason why we're, we chose this path, linking it back to why we built this business this way in the first place yeah. and being clear that we may or may not be living our values entirely at this moment. We took an opportunistic shot at something. A lot of people talk about, well, you got to live your values and it's really important. I agree. I'm okay with that. But the world's a complicated place. And I think as an advisor, we have the responsibility and frankly, the privilege to recognize that CEOs will make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Um, Hopefully, they're not going to make big, big, unrecoverable ones. To your point, we can make another decision next week. But even when things are good, as they are for some folks right now, some businesses are thriving beyond their wildest imagination because of the impact of the pandemic. Obviously, others are not. But how are we living our values in the good times as well as in the in the not so good times? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, living our values is complex, as you said. Very. If I have five or six values, there's going to be times when the decisions that I make are going to be aligned with some values and encounter to others. Yeah. Yeah. And that's those are the tough decisions that we have to make no matter what, whether it's a good thing or, or a negative thing, whatever it might be. Yeah, I think that's very insightful. They will or will not yet. What's most important is the ability as a leader to explain to people your reasoning behind violating some values, but following some others. This is the way I think about it. We're going to take care of employees. I know we said we're going to be profitable in all things, but you know what? We're not going to be able to do that because we didn't know a pandemic was coming. So this is why I'm doing these things. Or I have to be profitable, so I'm going to make some cuts, and that's going to hurt our employees. That's going to violate some of the things and commitments we made to our employees. But I didn't know a pandemic was coming. It can be the same reason. But as leaders, we need to be able to explain ourselves. That is such an important point. You mentioned it earlier about helping folks rehearse the communications about a decision and role play. I spend a fair bit of time working on in the what I, ref, what I refer to as the communication arts and and in this highly connected multi-window world we live in multi-device world we live in in what channel do we want to communicate something is that an appropriate is that appropriate to put together a short video is it better to perhaps write an email a longer email should we hold a series of town halls Should we make it a small group activity? This kind of planning is extremely important uh, to the the success of the message landing. You can say, as many leaders say, oh, I told everybody that. I I, I said that to them. It was was on the the, um, 
Handle is called. It's, well, on, the it's on the website, of course. It's on the website. Come on, Ben. Right. right. <laughs> no, the part that the question I always like, and you're talking about mediums, you know, whether it's website or town yeah. hall or, or video, the one I like is tell me right now how you're going to give this message. Give it to me right now. Like you said, rehearse it. And they go, what? I said, yeah, yeah. Talk to me like I'm an employee right now. We're going to rehearse this. And the looks that I get, this like look of fear in their in their eyes where they've got to, I said, look, just relax. But if you practice it with me, you can screw it up and we'll fix it. If you screw it up with your employees, you might not be able to fix it. Yeah. I'll just uh, give a hat tip to, to a extraordinary business leader that uses some language that I really like this. I'm referring to Ray Dalio at Bridgewater Associates. And he refers to it as scripting a movie. Mm-hmm. You're casting a movie. Who's playing what role? What are their lines? How do we want to focus the audience's attention so that it works? And it works for you as the actor, as the, as the person communicating it. You feel like it's authentic and it's true. And it works for the audience that is, it, it needs questions answered. And I think that metaphor of, of, of scripting a movie or producing a movie, I think, is the language that, uh, that Ray and the folks at Bridgewater use. I think is a very, very valuable metaphor yeah. for instead, you know, you use the word rehearsal. When you think of rehearsal, right, it's often right. in a theatrical sense. Um, and this, you know, communication is, is something that not all folks are built to do. I happen to be an extroverted person. You're obviously uh, extroverted as well. There are many, many successful CEOs that are more introverted, more mm-hmm. uncomfortable, the bigger the audience, and need help to work through that barrier to get the message across. Um, and I think recognizing that regardless of your needs, either to be extroverted or to be introverted, you do have to play this role of communicator-in-chief. And it's not an easy job, and it can make or break you at critical moments around important decisions. Uh, it, it's the job. You're going to have to do it. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a right-hand or a left-hand turn here right now, and I want to get personal. And you had talked about, and you put in here, you had a serious bicycle accident, and the impact that that's had on your life. And how has that impacted you, not just in getting involved in some of the nonprofit boards, but just as, as in the work that you do with CEOs and the work that you do with others uh, in, in your family, how is, how is having a serious accident like this impacted your life overall? Well, it's a, uh, it's a question I don't think about as much as I used to. The accident happened five years ago, but I, I believe it changed me in a lot of ways. To be clear, I've, I've been very fortunate in my life. I uh, made it to the role, was promoted to the role of CEO at the age of 35 of a global business. I have three beautiful children. I'm a pretty lucky guy. Mm. And I think, frankly, I took some of it for granted. And, and to be even more direct, I don't think I really noticed people who were disabled. I don't mm. think I really I saw, oh, you know, that person's in a wheelchair. Or that person needs assistance with walking or maybe has suffered uh, a brain injury. And I kind of moved past them, to be perfectly honest. I'm like, well, they're kind of living a different life than me. Not really relevant to my go, 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 go. And the story I told myself, I'm a successful guy. I'm going to be 
even more successful in the future. It's all going to go up and to the right. And that morning when uh, that driver veered off the road accidentally and knocked me 60 feet in the air and put me in in a helicopter, landed me in the hospital, was really something, especially for my wife and family. Now, I had the good fortune of being at Spalding, uh, being nearby to Spalding here in Boston, which is, I think, the top hospital for rehabilitation in the country. I happened to be in pretty good shape because I was training for a charity ride called the Pan Mass Challenge. But the fact is, it took me 18 months to get right again. It took me 18 months to be able to participate in a conversation like this because my auditory was changed significantly, could not accommodate loud noises. And even today when I'm watching the television, I'm asking for the TV to be turned down and everybody Mm -hmm. else wants it turned up because something happened in my hearing. The fact of the matter is I got my ass kicked physically, certainly. And I'm fine. I went out and of course, being me, I got another bike and I'm back on the road bicycling. But the fact is, is I have learned to appreciate the folks that are often unseen uh, who are, you know, we make accommodations for folks who have handicaps or are challenged in some way. They go through a separate entrance, they go up a ramp, et cetera. You see the world, the environment I see the world very, very differently today. Very differently. And I'm still a go-getter and I'm still a hard charger and I'm still achievement oriented, but I've become humbled by that. I don't, I don't think it's you know some transformational thing and they're going to make a movie about it, okay? I don't think my wife would say, oh, he's a completely different guy in terms of the way he's driven. But I think it became a, a pivot point about slowing down to check in with folks who aren't working at my pace, who aren't as focused on the goals that I'm focused on. And frankly, it was a little bit of a, no, maybe quite a bit of check on my arrogance and my, uh, frankly, it's, it's initially my self-confidence. I think my self-confidence is recovered. But when you can't stand up comfortably or lay down comfortably, you can't walk, you can't sit on a phone call, um, you've suffered traumatic brain injury, which, you know, which I did, boy, the world looks a lot different. And you wish it was a little kindler and a little gentler. And I'm, you know, I'm a pretty tough guy, but I've uh, become a lot more aware of those biases I have. And I, I hope it's made me a little bit of a better person. I certainly am very proud to sit alongside my fellow members and to watch in wonder as they do this work. And it, it, you know, to, to sum it all up, there's nothing like walking through a hospital and seeing people who look a lot like you who a few weeks ago were skiing in the mountain or riding their bicycle. And now they're struggling to communicate and live in the conventional way. There's nothing like that to give you a real good gut check on what's important. And I think that's what, what that bicycling accident meant to me ultimately. And I think that with that thought, Whatever happens, we need to be grateful. Oh. <laughs> uh, I, to be, I, yeah. you know, to, first of all, what you're talking about is going through a traumatic experience that caused you to stop, not to slow down, 
to stop cold, cold, and to be able to even get to some level of semblance of your previous life in 18 months. You know, it took that long. And it, we, we say 18 months in two seconds as if it's here and it's gone. Right. When you're living it, you know, I went through some struggles that took me about six or eight months to get through. And it seemed like several lifetimes. And I'm sure it felt that way for you. It did. And I think it also felt that way for my wife, who was my primary oh. caregiver, my kids, who, of course, were, you know, quite anxious and people who knew and, and, and love me and, and I love. And you can't there's no way to say thank you for that. There's no yeah. pos other than to live a better life. And to, and to give back in the ways that Spalding and other chari- charities allow me to. I think that's a privilege to there be able go. to contribute back um, and kind of get off the profit train and the growth train and the success train and, uh, you know. And make a difference. And make a difference in a, in a tiny way, an infinitesimally small yes. way. But, yes. but, hey, if it helps, it helps. And – it's it's wonderful to be able to do that, to be in a position to be able to do that with with time and, and talent and, and a little bit of treasure. So it's it's uh, it's a great question about about life. Yeah. <laughs> it's not all up and to the right. No, it's not. And so let's you know, if we can take one minute to f- finish this, I always ask the same question at the end. If you could write yourself a letter. And send it back to Ben 20 or 30 years ago and tell yourself something that maybe you might listen to. Maybe you won't. But what would you write to yourself? What would you tell Ben 20 or 30 years ago? I know you sent me the pre-notes and I was supposed to think deeply <laughs> on this, Dr. Gary. Think deeply, Ben. Think I, deeply. I, I would, You know, on this theme, I guess I would say at the moment, you'll be remarkably, remarkably happy and successful by being less of a striver and less of an achiever in the conventional sense. I always found my own path, but I think if I were to write a letter back to myself, it would be, obviously it's all going to be okay. And it's been great, but overachieving, it's not a worthy cause. It's not a worthy goal. And, and what's a worthy goal is achieving in a way that's balanced and rewarding that 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 isn't just single dimensional because I've been a pretty up until that I'm very single dimensionally focused on success and 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 so forth. So what I'm what I'm hearing is overachieving is overrated. Yeah, that's probably a good way of saying it. And I, I think that's a good way for us to finish today. Ben, I, I really appreciate you opening up and, and talking about your, your business and what you do to help people, but also, you know, your, your journey in the last five years to find yourself again after having uh, such a struggle. But it just makes life richer. You know, the Chinese saying, I've talked about this before, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. There's another interpretation of that. And I've used this to describe some of the things that I've gone through. That which does not destroy us makes us stronger because there's been times when I've been destroyed. I actually wish that I had been killed. That's how emotionally challenging a few things have been for me and uh, challenging for you. Now, I'm not saying that 
when I went through it, I uh, went to Connecticut and gave my mother a hug. And I said, don't worry, mom, I'm okay. I'm not going to, not going to go there. But it was the first time in my life that I thought about the word suicide and then made a decision. No, I'm not doing that. (laughs) But having friends and family and support, like what you're talking about around you, I felt, and maybe, I don't know, maybe you felt this way, but you're not going to let them down. Oh, absolutely. I didn't quite get to the level of depression that you're describing and experienced. I can't imagine what that's like, but I was pretty low for a pretty long time. And you're right. I've come back better and wiser. Awesome. Well, thanks, Ben. Ben Levitan, I appreciate it. He's the founder of Sedalian Partners. And you help business leaders today to really, with your experience, to even get better and better and grow. So appreciate that. And thanks so much for being our guest today. Thanks so much and really enjoyed it. I'm Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. This has been Leading from the Front, where leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Thanks for joining us. Take care and be well. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com. S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S dot com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.